0: fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever and with fishing booker you can experience it too no matter where you are discover your next adventure on fishing booker you're listening to the wild initiative podcast network learn more and check out all the shows at thewildinitiative.com
1: You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, where we talk all things fishing, conservation, and the outdoors. Today on the show, I'm joined by Palmer Henson, who's trying to see how many native brook trout streams in Georgia he can find. All right, welcome to episode number three of the Fish Untamed Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Palmer Henson. Palmer and I got connected Couple months back, when he had reached out to me to um, share with me a personal project he'd been working on for the past couple of years and is still working on, where he's trying to find as many native brook trout streams as he can in Georgia. Uh, of course, that immediately piqued my interest as someone who really enjoys fishing for brook trout but doesn't get to fish for native brook trout. I was just immediately interested in hearing his insights and experiences, you know, fishing these streams that rarely see any angling pressure in the mountains of Georgia. So super interesting conversation, uh, completely outside my wheelhouse. So I was, I was soaking it all up. Uh, apologies, though, we did have some microphone issues kind of halfway through the recording. So if you hear any static, that's what that is. But um, highly encourage you to stick it out through that static, just because Palmer's got so many good stories and insights that um, well worth sticking it out to the end. Uh, so, without further ado, here is my chat with Palmer Henson. Hey, Palmer, how's it going?
2: It's going great. How are you, Katie?
1: Pretty good. Thanks for hopping on today.
2: I feel honored to be. I feel honored to be joining you.
1: I think we have a lot to talk about. Um, we've spoken once before on the phone, just kind of hashing things out, and I remember having to kind of stop you because we're already getting into things that I wanted to say for this conversation. So I'm excited to uh, hear what you have to say. Um, Just as a little background, you and I crossed paths because you came across Fish Untamed and reached out and um, we've been kind of in contact since then. And then you had mentioned that you are in this, what is it, a four-year process, I think, of trying to find as many native brook trout streams in Georgia as you can, and that just sounds like the coolest project I've heard of.
2: <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, it is an undetermined length. I'm I'm probably three years into it and uh, have still a good long way to go, so it's, uh, it's, it's definitely long term, but lots of fun.
1: So I want to get a little background because I know I, I want to get into all the brook trout stuff, but uh, when I sent over the kind of bio for you to fill out you filled out even more than I was expecting to get and that just took me down a bunch of other rabbit trails so um, first off I want to hear about lost angel fly fishing because that's kind of how we first um, got connected because uh, your lost angel fly fishing group is seems to be very in line with fish Untamed's mentality of kind of getting back into the middle of nowhere and chasing fish that don't see people very often so I want to hear more about that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, Lost Angel—the the concept behind it is fly fishers who've left the flock and are out fishing out on the periphery where few other people are going. Now, in in reality, there's not a whole lot to it. It's it's a fun name, and there's uh, you know really just four of us who uh, think of ourselves as members, with with several kind of honorary members. Uh, there's, we don't have meetings or dues. There's no benefit to being a member, but it is a, it's a fun concept. And we do, when we do fish together, we a hundred percent are trying to get out, you know, past the crowds, you know, whether that's, uh, backpacking somewhere or up in, you know, deep in the Georgia mountains or fishing in the back country in Yellowstone, whatever it might be. So
1: how do you uh, know everyone in the group?
2: Well, one of the, one of the members is my brother and okay. and a good friend of his is, is another. And then a, a good friend of mine, who's here in Atlanta, who's, who's kind of my local fishing buddy, Jeff Giuliano. So it's, and we do a, an annual Montana trip. Uh, my brother and I used to do it with my dad. Uh, he's, I think we, we did 15 years with him and eventually he passed away and, and we've Jeff and, uh. Kevin Lane, who's my brother's friend, have kind of kind of filled in from there. And we still do our Montana, which is mostly a Yellowstone trip, but then fish together other places, other times as well.
1: Are you all based in Georgia?
2: No, Jeff and I are here and my brother and Kevin are up in Connecticut.
1: OK, uh, quite yeah, a most distance,
2: recently, <laughs> quite a distance. Yeah, uh, most recently, um, my brother's name's Phil. Phil. Kevin and I fished uh last week up on Cape Cod we've we we're fishing for stripers, um and uh, it felt it felt pretty back back country even though it's salt water uh fishing small channels among marshes and a really shallow bay, pleasant bay up on Cape Cod. So we had the definitely had the Los Angel Angel theme going though we're schooly striper fishing.
1: Yeah, it's uh, probably a little different than what you're usually um targeting. <laughs>
2: it is totally totally different but really fun and uh you know caught some some great little stripers
1: so are um are all the people in the group kind of on this brook trout uh journey with you or is that just a personal project for you
2: it's it's pretty much a personal project jeff comes along when uh when he can he's got um i'm i'm sort of a half empty nester. My daughter's off at college and I've got a stepdaughter who's still at home, but her dad's kind of fully engaged in her life, so he's he's the one uh doing the soccer coaching and things like that. So I've got some pretty good latitude on what I do and my wife is super supportive, uh, letting me head out pretty much every Saturday uh to go search for Brook Trout with the caveat that i'm home by five and she doesn't have to listen to it <laughs> <She's>, <laughs>
1: that's not that strict <laughs>
2: no no it's it's pretty good uh and jeff comes along when when we can usually we when when jeff's going to be with me we pick some larger streams that he'll generally fish those and larger is still really small and i'll uh i'll head up some of these tiny tributaries uh and won't uh won't force him to beat his way through the brush and (laughs) and things like that.
1: And it sounds like you do a lot more. Like you said that you have pretty um, lenient, I guess, permissions to go do whatever you want. It sounds like you do a lot more than just fish though. You uh, sent over that you trail run and climb and do like ultra marathons. Uh, I have to admit when, when you first reached out to me, I was, I was just like, Oh, this, um, because you're a lawyer, right?
2: I'm a banker,
1: a banker. Okay. Um, I was like, Oh yeah, this guy just, you know, is a hobby fisherman and just wants to reach out and make connections. And then I saw what all you do. And I was like, Holy crap, (laughs) this is, this is way more intense than I expected.
2: You know, I kind of got to fishing more from the like outdoor athlete aspect rather than, you know, the more traditional kind of hunting outdoorsman path. I, uh, Growing up, my dad's you know, two favorite pastimes were fishing and including a lot of fly fishing and bird watching, which uh, made for a super painful childhood, having to walk slowly and quietly through woods instead of uh, you know running free, the exact opposite of what I wanted to be doing. But uh, so I grew up exposed to a lot of fishing, um, though honestly. I don't think my dad really had the patience to teach my brother and I how to fly fish and we didn't have the patience to learn. So we spent a lot more time uh, spin casting like many kids do, Mm -hmm. Uh, but also did other sports. I, um, in high school, I played soccer and then I, I, I grew up in New York, North of New York city far enough North that we had a ski team. So in the winter I skied, I raced slalom. And in the summer mostly raced sailboats and fished. And, uh, and I, I spent, from when I was a little kid up until I was in my kind of mid-30s, and I'm almost 60 now, so one of the reasons I've got a lot of things on my plate is I've just been at it for a really long time. Uh, I spent, you know, years and years um, racing sailboats really hard. Uh, got really close to winning some national championships and things like that. And then I, I got married, and it was hard to kind of keep up that pace there. Mm -hmm. and i was getting a little burnout anyway and i had started doing some rock climbing so i spent probably i don't know it was almost 15 years doing tons of rock climbing but then also running a lot and doing a lot of trail running along with rock climbing those two fit together really well uh and then then you know eventually i started doing my so my when my daughter was born when she was really young uh even you know as young as two years old my friends and i would uh bring her rock climbing and she'd hang out at the bottom of the cliffs and play in the dirt and chase you know lizards and stuff like that while we climbed and then eventually she was old enough you know someone would always be on the ground with her um eventually she was old enough that she could start climbing and uh so she would climb with us and we would climb and uh, as she got into her mid-teens she started playing soccer so it was hard to cut out every Saturday you know I kind of had a hall pass back then too because uh uh you know I was taking my daughter with me right just
1: take her take her with you and just plop yeah, her down somewhere
2: exactly she she's been as a climb up in North Georgia named after her but uh and we we would every year take trips out to Yosemite and you know Canadian Rockies and places like that and climb and and we did some fishing on rest days for climbing. If we were going to be up in the mountains where there were some good trout lakes and streams, we we fished there too. Um this is turning into a longer story on this, but
0: and then oh, did a no, lot of running I did
2: uh <laughs> I did um I had a long-term goal of doing qualifying for and running 10 Boston marathons and I, it took me 16 years but I finally did that. Uh did a bunch of trail running uh and then Eventually I was, then I started doing triathlons and some of my, when my daughter started playing soccer, we didn't climb as much. So I started doing triathlons instead of just running and had a good long run there and was getting burnt out on that too. And it had always known I would, fishing would take kind of a more prominent position in my hobbies as I, uh, as I got older and got burnt out on some of the other sports. And so that was probably five years ago. I started, fishing more and more, um, you know, doing some of the, I still, I still run a lot and bike a lot and things, uh, but fishing more and more. So, so now I'm at the point where pretty much every Saturday I'm heading out somewhere to fish and more often than not, it's up, up to the mountains to search for brook trout.
1: That's interesting. Cause I assumed that you had just been um, like kind of fishing this whole time. So you took a quite a long hiatus from fishing as a kid, kind of got into some of the more, um, Active sports, I guess. Not that fly fishing can't be active, but some of the more taxing, I guess,
2: physically yeah, yeah. taxing
1: activities. And then just came back to fly fishing.
2: Yeah, that's a hundred percent right. I, I I came back to it, you know, call it twenty years ago. My dad had just retired, and he had he had had a big cancer scare. He had like a twenty percent chance of surviving, and so he he survived. And coming out of that. We were always a really close family and did a lot of vacations together. But my brother, dad, and I hadn't really done much just the three of us in forever. So that's when we started heading out to Montana. And I, uh I mean, 20 years ago, I literally bought you know the Dummies Guide. You know, one of those little guides, the Dummies Guide to Fly Fishing. And yeah, you know, I I'd fished a lot, but I kind of had to relearn how to fly fish. Um, every lesson that I had learned as a kid it was long gone. Uh, but read a lot. Even when I was doing all those other sports, I was reading a lot about fly fishing. And again, as I say, kind of had it in my mind that eventually I would do a whole lot more of it. Um, and then, you know, five or so years ago, I uh, I did a um, big trail run uh, in the Grand Canyon called Rim to Rim to Rim, which is uh, was probably the uh, pinnacle of my running career. <laughs> Not that it was super fast, but it was. 45 miles and each side is like a vertical mile. So it's a, it was a big goal. Yeah. I worked for a long time to build up to that. Um, and and had a good solid time. Uh, and after that, it was sort of like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to start fishing a lot. And Atlanta, I mean, coming from Colorado, you, I mean, you must look at Georgia and scratch your head. You know, does anyone trout fish in Georgia? Uh, but it's a great, you know, kind of hotbed for all kinds of fishing, but including trout fishing, you know, the, the top call it 50 miles of Georgia, you know, right underneath the Tennessee and North Carolina borders or up in the mountains. They've, there's 4,000 miles of trout streams, which is, you know, it's probably half what you have in Colorado or a a state like Pennsylvania or something like that. But still it's, you know, 4,000 miles is a lot of stream.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know you're you're right in that when I when I first think of Georgia, that's not what comes to mind. But I feel like in the past, I wouldn't say year or so, I've been hearing a lot more about it. It seems like it's kind of coming into the fly fishing scene the way that Colorado did, you know, years ago. And now it's kind of old news. And it seems like Georgia is kind of the new hot spot to go to. I hear a lot of people talking about going to North Georgia.
2: Yeah, it's uh, you know it's it, and part of it is we fish all year round, so you can come to you know, come to North Georgia in the middle of the winter and uh, still have good fishing. And we have a great tailwater, too. There's a lake that's uh, called Lake Lanier that's 60 miles north of Atlanta that uh, the water comes out of the lake into the Chattahoochee River, our, our tailwater at, you know, 50 plus or minus degrees all year round. So it's it has wild, uh, wild brown trout and stocked rainbows uh, and holdover rainbows. And, uh, I, I think there's probably are rainbows that actually spawn and reproduce in it as well. But it's a great tailwater. And that's, in the winter, they actually stock that all the way down into Atlanta. In the summer, after about 30 or 40 miles, it gets too warm to hold trout. Um, but the first 30 or 40 miles, we've got trout fishing kind of year round. Uh, now is, then, what
1: is South Georgia like compared to that? Because I always hear about North Georgia.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's totally, I mean, the, the trout habitat, except for that tailwater, the trout habitat stops in the first 50 miles, within the first 50 miles coming south of the Tennessee, North Carolina border. So it's, the it's just too warm. And, and the mountains, you know, Atlanta is the very bottom of the Appalachian Mountains. It's, you know, it's called the Piedmont uh, area. So it's, it's starting to flat flatten out and get too warm. And as you get south of Atlanta it's flat and hot and there's all kinds of great warm water fishing, but no, you know, you're well below where they're, they're trout. But the mountains, it's you know, the mountains are taller than they are in Vermont. Um I mean people are shocked when they hear that. It rains a ton. There are uh sections of the north georgia mountains particularly in the northeastern part of the state where it rains you know 75 inches a year in a normal year and you know which is i think 75 inches is right about the cutoff for it being a uh rainforest. it's a little less as you move to the west but still you know a good 60 inches which is nearly twice what say seattle has so we have lots of rain it's incredibly lush and dense and you know the mountains are super super dense and you know the (laughs) you'll you'll laugh at the elevations, you know, uh I mean the higher elevations are you know four thousand feet, but you know, most of the trout fishing is kind of two to two and a half in that range. Um you know super low compared to what you have. But for the East Coast it's you know it works and it's you know for all trout populations—it's—it's it's the very bottom. You know, North Georgia is the very, very bottom of the uh, trout habitat on the East Coast, and the brook trout—you know—it's even fringier. You know, of the four thousand miles, there's probably 125 or maybe 150 miles that have native brook trout. Um, so it's—it's it's real fringy.
1: Has the fly fishing culture that's kind of developed in the Northern areas because of the trout, has that started to leak down into Southern Georgia? I know there's no trout down there. Um, but is it a lot of warm water fishing with spin rods or is that fly fishing culture kind of seeped down into the warm water species as well?
2: You know, it, it, uh, it definitely has. And it's particularly sort of around Atlanta, uh, you know, in the summer in the you know that same Chattahoochee River when it warms up too much you know right around Atlanta to hold trout there, striped bass that migrate upstream into that area and people you know within the city limits of Atlanta in the summer you can fly fish for stripers, um, and then the whole you know the coastal Georgia uh, for redfish and other saltwater species there's tons of fly fishing there uh but i you know if you went to just your average bass pond in south georgia you know, no one's fly fishing okay but there's it's got i mean we have all kinds of great recent fly fishing resources which um you know when i started getting a little more serious about it you know five years ago or so i had all these incredible resources at my disposal we have you know the premier fly shop and the um southeast is called the Fishhawk. Uh it's a mile and a half from my house. Uh <laughs> you know, anytime I want, there's you know, five guys standing around who'll who know more about fly fishing than I'll, than I'll ever know that I can stop in on and you know ask questions. And we've got a great guide service that called River Through Atlanta that fishes that whole tailwater section. Um we've got a a Euro nymphing guide who uh named big t who does does nothing but teach people how to year on it i mean we've got Atlanta's big enough you know at six and a half million people or whatever that it can support all kinds of great resources and we also have a uh have an awesome airport so the people in atlanta travel constantly you know we can fly almost anywhere direct with delta based in atlanta uh so it's a Traveling crew. I mean, people are heading out west. They're heading to you know down south. You know, lots of great saltwater destinations. It's it's a it's a big active um community here.
1: Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Isn't Atlanta? I think the the most traveled through airport in the country, or maybe the world. I don't want to say the world because I'm not sure, but I think it might be the most traveled through airport in the country.
2: Yeah, it's it's um I think it's back and forth between Atlanta and O'Hare. I think Atlanta is probably leading right now, and then I think maybe Heathrow has a few more people. But yeah, exactly. It's and, it's a hub. And Delta is a, gr- a great airlines. It's right here, and we can fly literally almost anywhere directly with plenty of options. So it's a it's a traveling group here. But then we have all this great fishing here locally as well.
1: So how close are you to um, a fishing at all, and b the like smaller brook trout streams that you're generally hitting
2: so the the first part is yeah i'm 15 minutes from my house in the summer i can be fishing for you know striped bass shoal bass smallmouth uh you know panfish stuff like that in Mm -hmm. in the chattahoochee and then in the winter you know six months of the year they stock that you know same area with um with trout so in the winter i can I mean, I can fish stocker trout 15 minutes from my house. Uh, But to get really up into the true, you know, where you've got wild fish and then native fish, it's, you know, an hour and a half to, you know, the farthest corner of North Georgia where it's an awesome place for brook trout is two and a half hours probably. Uh, Okay. So I'm getting up, you know, Saturday I'll get up at, you know, 4, 4 4.15, be out the door by 5.00 you know, drive to two or so hours and then uh, you know, fish hard and try to be back in the car by two or two thirty or three or something.
1: And is there uh, what kind of land are you accessing there? Is that is there a national forest in that area or
2: there is. There's uh, the Chattahoochee National Forest is you know not quite a million acres, you know, and it spreads across North Georgia and there's for for trout, um, wild and stock trout, there's a lot of trout on private land, but there's a ton of public land also. I mean, that whole Chattahoochee National Forest and brook trout are almost exclusively on the public land because it's the higher elevations, it's the deeper, you know, deeper ravines and things like that. I mean, for brook trout to survive in, you know, this far south, it, you know, generally you've got to have a... North facing ravine that's, you know, maybe never been logged. Uh, you've hopefully no one stocked it with rainbows or if they have, you know, there was a barrier falls in there somewhere and it's, you know, you have to be, you know, generally above about 2,400 feet of elevation, which again, to you, it doesn't seem like much, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a little bit higher up. Coming from sea
1: level, I mean that's still a good deal up from there.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's it's definitely a lot of driving um, and a lot of, but they're they're great Forest Service roads. You know, when I when I started looking for Brook Trout, I ended up sort of breaking North Georgia into ten geographic areas, which were largely uh, wildlife management areas, but it, some were just basically watersheds, uh, and, you know, I'll hit one area after another. I mean, that's basically what I've been doing for the last three years, just concentrating on one of those geographic areas. And and each of those are, you know, call it 20,000 acres or so. Uh, You know, the smallest ones or the, the ones that have the fewest streams might have eight target streams, and the bigger ones are... 25 plus um but yeah it's a lot of a lot of driving a lot of driving on uh you know kind of beat up forest service roads too
1: yeah okay so i have a lot of questions on this brook trout project um uh, i've just been thinking of them as you've been talking but uh first of all what you got you started on this project what triggered the idea
2: so i uh when i started fishing in more seriously i was you're trying like all kinds of stuff Um, and it's all fun. I love to do it all, you know, whether it's tankara or Euronimphane or, you know, whatever. Uh, Started all these things, but definitely felt drawn to small streams. So I started focusing on the smaller streams in North Georgia, just because I don't know, I I, I just felt drawn to it. And started working my way through a fishing, there are two or three fishing guidebooks for North Georgia, started working my way through one, hitting all these small streams, um, and then, you know, there's there's not very many of the streams that get mentioned in the guidebooks as having brook trout, but found one and hit that stream and caught you know a native Georgia brook trout, uh, and it was fantastic. And you know if if you read uh, some of the online Sites and things like that that cover North Georgia, a lot of people have that you know they just want to catch a native brook trout is kind of a goal, and so I did that, and then I started looking around and trying to find a few others and I thought boy wouldn't it be great if maybe one day I could find ten you know catch brook trout on ten different streams and started working towards that and in the meantime I um had read that article that Zach Matthews has the loneliest brook trout in the world that I i'd sent mm-hmm. to you and and that definitely kind of sparked my interest that much more and he de- he describes what it's like down here great in that article so that got me going and trying to get to 10 streams got me going and then you know it just kind of morphed into well if i can if i can hit 10 you know can i hit 20 and then i wonder how many Brook brooktrat streams there are and and there there's a book called um Brook Trout in Dixie, which covers it talks about Brook Trout in all the southern states, you know, uh West Virginia, it may even start with Maryland and works its way all the way south um to Georgia. And I think in that book it was where I read it estimated there were maybe as many as eighty streams that have brook trout in Georgia. You know, it only named one or two of the better known ones, but you know, it ha so it that's sort of, you know, well if I can get twenty. Uh, And so I started spending all this time online looking at, you know, my Saturday evenings or weekday evenings or whatever. I was just pouring through websites and online searches, trying to find names and and finding, you know, I might find a scientific report that talked about it, you know, a 30-year-old genetic study about brook trout in North Georgia. And that report might have a table that listed some stream yeah, you know, the streams they sampled and then uh you know, some of the local trout Unlimited limited chapters would do stream projects for Brook Trout. Yeah, you know, so I'd pick up those names and then eventually I organize them into this database and started just working through it. So now there are hundred and sixty something, um streams in the database of which i've caught brook trout on 74 there are another 45 or so that i've fished and have uh dismissed as not having brook trout but i still have a long way to go and and every you know every so often as i get deeper into a particular area you know more and more streams get added to the list you know you're you're fishing in a wildlife management area and working through the streams there, and you know you've got some some info on some of the streams, but then you're fishing the ones that are similar and you know have all the right characteristics to be a brook trout stream, and then you see another one that was never in the database, and so you add that to the database and eventually go fish that. Uh, so it's it just kind of has snowball uh, snowballed rather, um, and then along the way I met. Uh, just pure happenstance. I met a guy from the Forest Service. It was a funny story. I was down this remote Forest Service road, hadn't seen anyone all day, which is the normal case. I mean, when I leave my house at five in the morning, I, you know, I'm i not talking to a human being until I get home at five, right. usually. Uh, and so I was driving, I was heading out at the end of the day. And in the middle of nowhere, there was a sign that said all traffic must stop in half a mile, you know, regular road sign. And, you know, drove a half mile and said, you know, all traffic must stop for a survey. And there was a guy from the Forest Service standing there. And I was the third, third car that had passed by. All, he'd been there from, you know, nine to four. I was the third car that had passed by. And he had just a usage survey, you know. 50 questions on what I was doing. I was spending money in the area and things mm-hmm. like that. And so he and I got talking about what I was doing. And he introduced me to another guy at the Forest Service who spent a lot of time um, with the Department of Natural Resources and their trout biologists and, uh, and try to limit other people. He you know he was spending a ton of time on, on trash streams. So he and I sat down together one day and kind of compared databases and he gave me some new ideas. I gave him some streams that he wasn't familiar with and didn't realize held brook trout. But then he introduced me to a biologist at the Department of Natural Resources who uh, I've just recently spent time with. I kind of wanted to get to the point where I had like a really big database before I approached that um, that individual just because he wasn't going to be very excited about, se- you know, sharing brick trout streams. <laughs> you know, and I'm not excited about sh- sharing stream names either. It's a, you know, they're all pretty tenuous and can't handle much pressure. But he, uh, it was interesting. We we sat down together uh, for a couple hours and he said, yeah, I'm, he was relatively new to his position and they, they hadn't had a trout biologist for about 10 years. Just because of budgetary restrictions, and he said, "Um yeah, you know, I've had all these things on my plate, but I'm finally getting to the point where I'm going to try to catalog and update where all the brook trout streams are and i had you know since the beginning of me being in this position, I had thought maybe there were some fishermen I could recruit, and you know i was i don't know which of us was more excited, you know I had this huge database and he had a huge database and was was about to start you know electroshocking streams and working on his and i'm constantly working so anyway we're in we're in close contact now and you know swapping emails and you know data all the time now um so we'll see where that goes and that you know the for the past three years i've been working on this i've thought you know I've, i'm building this database that i really can't share with anyone because i can't you know you can't publish the names of these streams and uh, they're just a little too fragile. Uh, but hopefully some good will come of it because it's really hard work and it's, you know, it's a, it's a big effort. And so this is finally, you know, hitting a biologist who is really curious and he's trying to work through the genetics of, uh, of the different streams and things like that. So anyway, there's finally some good is going to come of it, I think, um, rather than just me hitting a personal goal.
1: So was your goal when you met up with him with already with a database under your belt, just to, I know I talk about this sometimes, like referring to hunting where you don't want to just call someone up and ask where to go. You kind of want to come in showing that you've already done a little bit of legwork. Was that kind of your goal here to, prove that you're not just some Joe Schmo off the street who wants the answers to where all the brook trout are and show that, you know, you've done the legwork. You just want some verification and, you know, a little bit of help from the biologist.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I definitely wouldn't have reached out if I had, if I wasn't as far along as I am. And and even the original um, forest service ranger, i you know, I wouldn't have followed up on that introduction to the guy I met alongside of the road if I at that point I was probably fifty you know, I found Brook Trout on probably fifty streams. And his database was you know, it's probably twenty years out of date and a little less accurate. But in that, you know, spending time with him, there were a few streams that I had crossed off and he was like, No, you need to go back and (laughs) you need to refish refish that one because I'm sure they're brook trout he was right. And that's the same thing has happened a little bit with the guy from the DNR, but we're still uh, still kind of comparing notes. Um,
1: so do any of these streams, are they are there any that aren't named or are not even like really documented? Have you come across one out in the field that you look on a map and it's just not there?
2: There are, no, I've never found one that's not on a map okay. at all. Uh, there are very few, there's maybe three in my database that are unnamed tributaries. Um, and, and that kind of raises the question of a, a couple of different paths we can head down. One is, you know, topo maps. And the other is you've got streams that have brook trout, but then separate populations. You know, one of the big themes from that Zach Matthews article was you've got these these isolated populations. So if you've got a stream and there are brook trout above, you know, 3,000 feet and above a barrier uh, where no other fish can get up to them, that little population is completely cut off of every other brook trout population out there. And that's where, that's why he named the article, you know, the loneliest brook trout in the world is this These little remote populations that are just by themselves. And that's why what the uh, DNR biologist is trying to get at is checking the DNA of those and seeing how much they differ. You know, you might have a population that's been isolated for 300 years that has developed its own little DNA. Um, But there, and then there are other ones on my list that, you know, you'll have a stream that has brook trout in it and then two tributaries and all three of those streams can intermix. So if I've got, you know, whatever, 74 brook trout streams that I've found, so, you know, confirmed, and there's probably 45 different populations in that. So there's some group that can intermix, but some groups that are isolated. Um, One of the coolest streams I found is a, uh, it's an unnamed tributary of a, stream that holds brook trout but the this tributary flows down uh into a basically a swamp and it's on the map is connecting with the mainstream but it's it's not even a trickle even at you know pretty high water and we we've had a really rainy it rained 100 inches last year in the area i'm talking about so we've had high water um you never see where you basically that that tributary never connects with the main river. It just comes down into the swamp and is sort of absorbed. Um, and, but when you get higher up on that stream, there are brook trout. So even though that's a tributary of another brook trout stream, it's this totally isolated little population. Maybe if it was really flooding, some of those brook trout could wash down into the main stream, or maybe a fish could swim up into there. But uh, yeah, it's cool. Um,
1: Do you ever find other species in these creeks or, I mean, obviously if something like a rainbow or brown came in, I'm sure the brook trout population probably wouldn't last too long. Um, But do you ever catch little chubs or anything?
2: There, So one great indicator that there probably aren't brook trout is if you catch chubs because chubs are going to be, you see chubs mixed with um, rainbows all the time and maybe even brown trout, but I never ever see them mixed in with brook trout. Um, I think the the brook trout need just like a notch colder water. Uh, I do. There's there's a couple streams that have brown trout and brook trout mixed together. Uh, And there's two I think in my database that have rainbows and um, brook trout mixed together. But generally. And and you know all those you know forty whatever that I scratched you know I mean maybe a third of those I didn't find anything at all and you know two thirds I probably found mostly rainbows. And that was going to
1: be my next question: how how long will you fish a stream before like and not catch anything before you chalk it up to there's nothing in here versus maybe you just haven't gotten to the right spot yet or you just haven't seen any.
2: Yeah, you know, and I'll give it a hard hard effort so i'll fish a stream all the way up to where it sort of disintegrates and you know it sort of splinters it near its headwater spring um i mean i've had streams that i've fished as many as four times you know which is four days you know looking for brook trout uh, before i've given up you know there are other ones that You just get on it. It just feels immediately like um, everything's wrong. But yeah, I'll give it a pretty pretty hard go uh, before I'll before I'll give give up on it. And I've gotten better, you know, in the last three years, I've gotten a lot better at it too. I, um, you know, some of the ones that I'll eventually go refish that I had scratched off the list, I just feel like I'm better at knowing where I'm going to find them and Everything everything about my technique and equipment, everything's just better. Uh it's kind of like uh, you know, a miner, you know, going back and mining an old claim with modern technology or something like that. So
1: do you go back and fish ones that you've caught brook trout in again, or is that kind of like a checkbox and you move on um and you'll go back to ones that you haven't caught them to try to see if you just missed something, or you go back to ones that you fished just to catch fish again?
2: There, if if uh, if a stream that I've caught brook trout in is near a stream where I'm spending a lot of time, and I've got an extra hour or two, I'll definitely stop and refish uh, refish a stream. Or or maybe if I fished it in the dead of winter and caught one brook trout, yeah, you know, I might maybe I'll go back in June, you know, prime season, and refish it but generally i'm generally i'm moving on
1: and what about in the same day like if you i mean obviously you're probably going for a couple hours and i'm not assuming that you catch one and leave but have you had any where you catch one and then you know you don't catch anything else but you still chalk it up as a win or are you is your goal kind of to consistently catch fish out of one before you consider it you know a solid brook trout stream
2: now i'll i'll uh if it's a nice stream and I'm enjoying fishing it, I'll fish it for several okay. hours. If it's if it's a total nightmare of like rhododendron and and you know brush and you know if I catch I I usually like to at least catch two, but there are definitely ones on my list where I've only caught one. Uh, I, those are largely ones I hit in the winter, but uh, I like to at least get a couple. And if it's a nice stream, I'll keep going. And and it it's. Uh, you know, some of the streams lend themselves or a little, you know, you'll have a group of streams right together. And so there are days when I'll get, you know, I've gotten a couple or even three streams in one day. Um, that's rare, but that definitely has happened too, which, uh, you know, it helps offset some of the, you know, four days on one stream right. <laughs> with nothing to show <laughs> for it.
1: <laughs> that article you sent from Zach Matthews uh have you fish do you know um like where he was, and have you fished any of those areas
2: i do it it took a while to uh figure out which stream it was, but I definitely did it's um <laughs> it's not the southernmost brook trout stream in georgia uh you know and I think he'll admit to that too. there are some that are further south, but I definitely found it i I had brought a copy of the article with me with pictures and kind of verify the spots and it is, I mean, he talks about in the article that it's a great brook trout stream and it really is. It's, it's an all-star stream. It's bigger than most of them. It's got a great, healthy population. Uh, it's a, it's a really good one. Yeah. I
1: really enjoyed the article. And there,
2: it was, I liked the yeah, pictures. Yeah. I liked
1: the writing um, and I saw one of the comments on it said that someone had kept coming back to read it every year. And I think I might be one of those people now too.
2: Yeah, it's definitely motivating. And there there are other so there's probably ten, at least the ones I've found, ten just great brook trout streams that are pretty you know, decent size and you know, kinda open and easy to move up on, where they've got big, healthy populations where you'll you know, on a good day you can get ten brook trout in an hour and um and some on the bigger size which might be eight inches or something i mean they're still still small so there's there's some really good streams and where the access isn't too bad but there's you know of the however many days i've done this now i've seen one person one time i mean literally i mean i go every single day i go do this i never see a single person from when I walk away from the car to when I get back to the car. Was it
1: shocking when you came uh, across someone?
2: It was so early in uh in it, it was maybe the third stream I got that I didn't really realize how rare that was. And it it's a it's a stream that's better known and has really, really easy okay. access. There's basically a Forest service road that goes alongside of it. And it's right in the middle of um you know a really close to the Appalachian Trail and right in the middle of you know lots of other good streams and things like that so it's in hindsight it's not terribly surprising uh that one also someone sent me a picture of a natural uh natural tiger trout that's that's one of the ones that's got a few brown trout mixed in and um that was I was you know I was shocked to see a natural tiger trout that you was caught really one cool but that was no no so a friend of mine did uh and sent me a picture of it but it was for for that stream where i saw the person but i go i mean i just go day after day up there without seeing anybody and it's and when you're doing it it you know i i joke that i mean these streams are so small and so tight and so hard to fish that hardly anyone wants to do it you know this project I joke that it's become a way to catch a ton of tiny <laughs> rainbow trout, yeah. You know, while, while experiencing the absolute worst fly fishing in Georgia. Uh, I mean, I use a six and a half foot rod. I, you know, I could uh, suit it up when I'm leaving the car just because it's so dense. So I'll, it, you know, if, if I can possibly help it, I don't wear waders. Uh, you know, there's maybe three months out of the year where I have to wear waders, but I'll, You know, even when it's mid-December, I've got you know wading boots with gravel guards, and then a heavy pair of neoprene socks on the inside of that. And then on top of that, I wear snake uh, snake gaiters, which in the winter, you know, when snakes are down, is just to protect my legs. But you know, they're all these streams are snake-infested, and you can't see the ground when you're walking through the brush. Um, I've got knee pads on you know camo shirt uh and then i've got i i all my fishing stuff i keep in a really small chest mm. pack you know i really just have one box of flies you know a spool of 5x tippet you know nippers you know things like that some floating but hardly any fishing stuff uh and i'm almost always fishing uh <laughs> my I have three, three different variations of common flies that I fish, uh, dry flies. One uh, one I call an L.A. special, which is a Los Angeles. Well, let me go to the first one. My, my true confidence fly is a variation of a pink post parachute Adams, uh, where I tie it. I have what I call a jog bra tie, where if you envision a runner with a fluorescent pink jog bra and a you know, heather gray tank top over it, you can see, you know, kind of a the pink hue coming through the heather mm-hmm. gray and around the fringes, you can see some pink. And so when I tie my jog bra, I call my jog bra three PA, three PA is the pink resperation atoms, I use fluorescent orange thread and I use regular gay, gray dubbing, but I dub it kind of lightly so you can see the pink hues come through and then uh when I you know, whip finish it and things like that, you obviously have like a tiny little pink hot spot up on the head. So I fish that 75% of the time. Then I have another Parachute Adams variation that I call um, an LA special, which Los Angeles special, which uh, Dave Whitlock had written something I read that said, brook trout are attracted mostly to orange or more to orange than any other color. I have no I, no reason to doubt him and i rely i would rely on him more than me so i started tying very similar with an orange post but i the part of the um fly in front of the post i dub with orange dubbing instead of gray dubbing so it's got a bigger hot spot and then a uh, you know classic uh brook trap fly is a sable wolf and i tie that with Uh, the wings, I make them orange and I use a, still a rust orange, but it's, it's, it looks much more orangey than rust colored on the, and I call that a lone wolf. Uh, and part of, part of the bright colored posts and wings are you're so deeply in the shade. It really, really helps to be able to see the fly. Isn't
1: that like the best thing about Uh, brook trout that you don't need to take a lot? When you were talking about how you only carry, um, Basically a handful of flies with you, and I—I I swear I need to trim my my fly pack down because every time I go out, I'm usually usually there's multiple species that I may encounter, and I, my mindset is always like I need to have you know my entire collection just in case. And then inevitably, when I go after brook trout, like all I use is a parachute atoms and I question why I'm still looking, lugging around all my flies when you know I pull the same one out every single time.
2: Uh, you know i that's exactly right they'll and some of the some of these fish you know may not have seen it i mean I, it sounds like i'm exaggerating but i've had plenty of streams that i don't think anyone's fished in years um and the fish are so i mean they're, they're not very you know the i mean like a typical freestone they're they're not very fertile streams and so you can cast a brook trout and they'll it may be the fourth cat i mean they may hit your fly four times before they finally hook up but unless you truly prick them they're not going to give up on your fly <laughs> it, and you know it really doesn't matter that much you know, if it's raining or something maybe i'll throw a foam beetle just cuz i have to it's easier to keep floating and occasionally when a stream will be big enough that i'll drop like a an unweighted uh hair uh, hair's ear pheasant tail nymph off of it but yeah they I mean it it's not complicated once you it's hard to find mm-hmm. the fish and it's hard to get into them but once you're there you know if you can cast into a, a pool or a pocket there you're gonna pretty much know that fish are there um but then i so th- so that's the fish you know the fishing gear and then i i've got a uh I've got a couple of different short rods, but my go to is a uh like a six and a half foot medium kind of action three weight uh i'm i'm always surprised when I look at rods that are available by the different manufacturers that more people don't have six and a half foot three weights It seems like you know everyone you talk to says, yeah, you know small streams you know you can still be throwing bigger flies so you Should go with a three weight instead of a two weight, but everything under seven and a half foot seems to be two weights these days um and I've got a shorter fiberglass rod that is fun, but um I you mean know, I think everyone should try fishing with a fiberglass rod just like a ten car rod. It's just fun, but it's not really a go to uh and yeah you know, people on small streams tend to go with really soft rods, just you know the concept that they'll load a lot better. You know they're with these really short casts, but um, something that Dave Hughes had written in a book about small streams, he had this theory that you want a bit faster rods, so, so you can throw tighter loops and get them into narrower places. Uh, and I 100% agree with that. I think it's really easy to get too soft on a rod. Uh, one of the rods I have, it's um, is much faster. It's a Sage uh makes a rod called a dart that's like a super fast six and a half foot three weight. And that might be a little overdone, but it, you know half or more of your casts are going to be bow and arrow casts, and you can sling a tight bow and arrow loop a really long way with that rod. It's um it's super impressive. Uh and that's those are the techniques, right? Your bow and arrow casting, your dapping. Is probably a little overrated, but it definitely works. You know, sometimes, uh, and you know, it saves some days for me. Um, you know, you roll casting, and you know, occasionally, once in a great while, you'll have enough room to actually do like a real cast. Uh, but that's kind of what you're what you're up against. I've I've become a and you know, if you roll ca- or if you uh, bow and arrow cast enough. I find sometimes, you know, when I could make a regular cast or roll cast, I'll just like instinctively go to like a really long bow and arrow cast. Uh, Joe Humphreys has a an awesome video on uh, the proper way to bow and arrow cast, which I think everyone should look at. If you go to YouTube and Google Joe Humphreys' bow and arrow cast, you'll see it. But it, most people try to hold the fly and, um, you know, they, they just don't get the the distance or the accuracy that they need. I
1: think the, the whole topic of, you know, fast versus a slow rod on those small streams and how a lot of people tend to associate smaller streams with slower action rods. I wonder if that kind of comes from the fact that you are fishing in a, it sounds like a very tightly, um forested area versus something like the high country of california where there's just a meadow stream i feel like that would be better for a slow action rod where you don't have you don't need to make the pinpoint precision casts you're just getting the fly on the water i think that's where i would take a slow action rod um but where you are it sounds like one you know one inch to the right and you're caught up in a tree branch which is probably why you need that faster action is that we you say that's accurate
2: yeah, I would 100% agree with that. And the and the uh, you know, you're not. It's not like you're trying to make a soft presentation on really still water. Right. So, I mean, the water's, you know, it's these are tumbling streams for the most part. Uh, even the slower section, there's usually decent current. So you're not. You don't need that slow action to deliver a dry fly, you know, really lightly onto the water. Um,
1: Do you find that when you show up, that if there are brook trout, that you tend to find them right away? Like, what's the longest you've fished before you found one?
2: uh, Two miles. Okay. And
1: how far up up have you hiked? I know you said you go up to, you know, basically the, the headwaters or the spring that forms these creeks. But what's what's your average or what's the farthest that you've had to go up to reach that point?
2: It's probably not from where I would start fishing. It's probably not much more than a couple miles. Okay. You know, there's a huge um, variation. I mean, some of the streams you might have to hike three miles to get to, you know, the elevation and where you think the, uh, and this is what I've gotten better at. You know, I used to just start at the bottom, you know, where I, you know a tributary hit a main river and just battle my way from the bottom to the top um, now I you know figure a way in from the side and hit it at a higher elevation where you know I think I'm more likely to find brook trout but you you know you might have a three mile hike to get in or or you might you know park the car where it crosses underneath a forest service road and just start right up I mean there's some that yeah there are plenty of streams I've caught brick trout within sight of you know my car and there's plenty of others that it's been way way up there and it's it takes a really long time i mean the the woods are so dense and you know the you're it, you are know, constantly climbing over and under and uh you're pouring sweat i mean it's it's a battle moving up these streams so to go a mile takes yeah it takes several hours to you know to fish a mile worth uh and you, and you usually, you know, you kind of have a, <clears throat> frequently have the same battle just getting back to the car too. Uh, now you can, what I call the rhododendron line, uh, you know, the the streams are for the most part just encased in rhododendron. And uh, when you finish, you know, you're fishing upstream and when you finish fishing, you know, you can climb, you know, 100 yards up the hillside to get above where the rhododendron is. or you know, 75 yards or whatever, and then start trying to make your way back downhill. Uh, and, and you're, you know, I, I do things like when I'm researching a stream, I'll, there's a bunch, bunch of topo maps that I'll kind of cross-reference. So there's, I don't know if you're familiar with topo zone. Topo zone <laughs> is awesome. Uh, you can <clears throat> get on there and, you know, find a stream and then there are two different uh topo maps. One is a one's a forest service version and one is, I don't know, another version. And then it also has the same sort of Google map format and then a satellite, you know, a Google satellite image too. And you can zoom on in on an area and then toggle back and forth between all four of those and you can get a really great uh view of what you're coming up against when you're going to fish that stream. And then there's another, uh, another program called Cal Topo, which has a, does a better job of having hiking trails and things like that. Uh, okay. It'll often have things that you won't find on Topo Zone. And then the a Garmin, you know, the regular Garmin GPS will often have a trail or have something that, those other two don't have so I'll, I'll cross check with my my gps as well it's you and, and then i don't know do you know uh stream maps stream maps is no. a um uh, it's an app for your phone that is incredible for searching you can you know pick a state and then search for the name of a of a stream and it'll Pull it right up, and it'll have it color coded in one color, and the streams it flows into are color coded in another color. It's a, it's an amazing app that, you you know, and you, and you kind of, if you, to do this project, you sort of have to have a love for maps, which sounds, sounds totally nerdy, but, uh, you know, if I'm sitting around like, waiting for a dentist appointment, I'm probably like pulling out my phone and scanning on. Stream maps, you know, to look at where I might be fishing next weekend. It's you have to be a complete, completely obsessed with maps to make all this really work to find the streams and figure out the access and, uh, you know, figure out the best way in. I mean, it may be as simple as there's a stream in a ravine behind or below a dirt road. And if you look at a satellite image, you can pick out where there's less just heavy vegetation you know it's just maybe like pine trees or something mm-hmm. and and you know follow you know you then you end up driving to that point and picking that you know path of least resistance and you know heading downhill for half a mile to hit the stream you know versus if you picked a more vegetated area it'd be a huge battle to get down through all that mess
1: yeah i've definitely been in the same boat with the mapping and the maps not agreeing i haven't used uh the the resources that you've mentioned but um i generally have the same problem where i'll have three or four different mapping programs or you know trail apps or things like that all together and then you know have to piece together the trail because each one only has a portion of it and then you know you get there and it doesn't match one or they the trail just disappears and it says it was there because it used to be there and i think that's half the fun is just trying to figure it out because I think it's exciting when I come across areas like that because I know that it's probably not heavily trafficked because anywhere that's yeah. heavily trafficked is going to be well-documented.
2: Yeah. And that's um, the Cal Topo. The trails that are on there are, are definitely trails that are used a lot more often. Uh, but people, people still aren't taking those trails into fish areas. Uh, but I agree with you. It, it, it's really that's part of the, the cool part about all this is all the exploration. And then finally, you know, Saturday morning, you get to go and actually see what's really there and see if, if your premise on how you're going to access that stream really works out. And if there really are brook trout down there. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it's like Christmas every yeah.
2: Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's, you know, all the catch, you know, a six inch brook trout. Uh, it's, um it's cool though. And there, you know, there's, You know, another aspect that we haven't talked about at all that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention is there's a big sort of backwoods travel safety aspect that uh shouldn't you know, anyone who wants to do this shouldn't hold back on it all. Uh you know, you're heading into areas you you're losing cell coverage several miles before you ever leave your car. Um, and then you're heading in areas where they're you know all kinds of snakes there's there's bears there's wild pigs uh and you're like climbing through brush and up and over falling down trees maybe a tornado went through an area and you've got to go through a whole tornado mess you know we're in, in georgia there are tornadoes um and so you you've got all you're always going to fall yeah i don't think i've ever gone out where i haven't fallen <laughs> maybe even a couple of times including like Falling, you know, ten feet down a waterfall that I was like halfway up uh, in the old rock climb experience uh, comes in, but it turns <laughs> out you know, it turns out waiting boots don't have the same grip on wet algae covered rock as sticky rubber does on clean granite. Um, but uh, so so I I have my fishing gear in the the small chest pack, but then I've got pretty much all the time I've got a backpack that has. Bear spray in it it's got uh this little survival pack that's got stuff like a flashlight and a space blanket and some fire starters and a whistle and you know, some real basic stuff like that but pretty compact uh yeah you know, water bottle and food and then instead of a first aid kit, I carry a trauma pack I don't know if you're familiar with those No. it's uh it's a it's about the size of like a the, fir- the size of a first aid kit you would bring uh but it has sponges soaked with a chemical that will help stop bleeding and uh compression bandages so it's yeah you know, the the theory is that the average first aid kit that a hiker's going to have solves problems that can pretty much wait you know it solves cuts and scrapes and headaches and you know bee stings uh but problems that can't wait like you know you slice an artery mhm that's what a trauma pack, um, yeah, solves. They're, they're light. They don't take up much room. They're not that expensive. You can get them on Amazon. So uh, do you
1: take that in addition to typical first aid things like bandages and gauze, or is that just a replacement? And you figure if you, you know, scrape an arm that you'll just rub some dirt in it a, and wait yeah, it out.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a replacement. I mean, they're in that little survival pack there, A couple of god's bandages and but there's very little maybe a roll of first aid tape but basically i'm relying on the um on the trauma pack and then the other like really important thing is uh a plb i don't know if you're familiar with those, a personal locator beacon Mm
0: -hmm.
2: so it's um it's a satellite activated system where you buy the unit, you don't there's no subscription fee or anything like that. And it really just has like one big button on it that if you and you, and you register it, uh, you know, every couple of years you have to go back and re-register with your contact information. But if you become incapacitated, you know, you pull it out and hit that button and it sends a an emergency signal with your GPS coordinates. Uh you know and just transmits for the next 30 hours um and that gets to you know if if i leave my car at you know 7:30 in the morning and am you know, a mile and a half up a stream you know and break my leg at 10 my wife generally knows where i'm going but i change you know sometimes the road is closed or you know they i mean i change a lot too you don't necessarily stick to the original plan uh so it's not, you know, at five o'clock if I haven't called her and said I'm almost home, you know, she's calling me to ask where I am and you know, at five thirty she's gonna call me again and you know, this time be you know, really mad. Yeah. <laughs> and uh you know, maybe it's at six or six thirty she's gonna realize there's a problem and start trying to figure out where I am or who to call and I'm basically spending the night, you know, before someone has any hope of finding me, whereas with this, you know, if I break my leg at 10, at 1001, there's a signal going out. And here's where he is. And he's got a problem and has to be rescued. Um, so that that's – and because I'm always alone, uh, I think that's just hugely important. Yeah. That, you know, the the bear spray and, um, you know, the uh, it's one kind of North Georgia tip, tip if you're moving up a uh, – stream and the water suddenly gets cloudy like it rained uh, you know, but it doesn't level doesn't come up. There's there's a herd of pigs, you know, somewhere not too far above you. Oh interesting. Uh, yeah, they're they make a total mess and um bears, pigs, snakes, and then honestly the the only thing that's really hurt me is uh three different times I've walked through uh yellow jacket nests, you know, each time. Good for you know, eight to 12 stings. And that's, uh, but I'm always really wary about pigs and bears, bears pretty much are heading the other way if they see you. Um,
1: Have you ever had an encounter with a bear or anything while you're out?
2: You know, the only, the only bear one, so I've seen several bears and they've all been headed in the other direction. Except one time I was um, heading into fish a stream and the road had washed out uh in a in a heavy rainstorm so the road was closed so i was mountain biking in it was like four miles in which is an awesome if you ever see a closed road it means you've got like this whole wilderness to yourself if you're willing to go in there and so i started mountain biking in real early you know it was in the winter so it wasn't like that early And I could just start seeing, yeah, I could see the road totally fine, but just start seeing into the woods. And the road was on a big, big slope uh, where it dropped off dramatically below me. And I saw ahead of me this like jet black thing moving up a tree. And I was like, what is that thing? I got closer and closer and realized it was a, bear cub and it was like a nature film where you know you're taking a picture up from a tree canopy because the tree was down below me and i never i never saw the mama bear but uh i'll tell you lance lance armstrong fully juiced up couldn't have beaten me out of there um but and but pigs uh i accidentally cornered a herd of maybe 20 pigs one time they they saw me and headed up what turned out to be kind of like a dead end and had to, and they had a bunch of the, pigs are like the opposite of bears, bears, you know, if they've got a cub there, that's when you have to worry pigs, if they've got like those little wiener pigs with them, they're, they're just trying to herd them away from you. They're, they have no interest in you. They're just trying to get away from you. And so this herd of pigs had to come back like right past me to get out of, you know, they had just worked themselves in this corner. Um, and then a couple other times I've come across like single adult pigs who've stopped and like squared up to me. Um but have always, you know, always moved on eventually.
1: Yeah, we don't have any of that up here. <laughs> Just bears.
2: Yeah. Bears and nice yeah, mountain uh,
1: lions, but I don't yeah I don't think you guys have any of those over there, do you?
2: We have you know, North Georgia might have twenty mountain lion sightings a year, oh, really? which is uh which is dramatically fewer than the uh, Sasquatch sightings. So <laughs> you can, I'm sure we have 200 Sasquatch sightings.
1: We have quite a few of those up here too.
2: Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, and then the snakes are, you know, it's just so, the snake haters is critical and wearing full, full like boots. Um, in the summer, Sims makes this boot that is designed to wear with bare feet, but it's like a full wading boot. Mm-hmm. Uh and if it's a little cooler, you can fit like a thin pair of neoprene socks inside of that. So in the summer, I'll wear those, but it's a full boot. And then it's got the snake gaiter on top of that. And then as it gets colder, I'll switch over to like regular wading boots, as I mentioned, with the gravel guards and the um, and the neoprene socks kind of layered up. And that's good till, I mean, it can be raining in 40 degrees and uh, it'll feel totally fine, you know, it, particularly in the. Maybe not in the end of February when the water's colder, but in the December, it feels totally fine, uh, waiting wet like that. And the yeah the waiters just kind of the waiters I do wear when I wear them are just the waist high okay. ones. Okay. Um, they're still hot and they're still constrict movement and you're tearing them up. I you know I when I first start getting holes in my waders, I would uh, get Aquaseal and you know carefully. Search out each hole and dab some Aquaseal on it, and then now I just turn them inside out and go buy a big tube of silicone seal at the hardware store and put a big bead of silicone silicone seal along the inside of the shins and knees and seat and smear it around with like a plastic butter knife. I and mean, it's you would just rip everything up and all that, all the briars and stuff like that.
1: Um, you know, I first started another. Oh, uh, go ahead.
2: Uh, Another great tip uh <clears throat> another my own invention, but I'm sure Patagonia and Orvis and Sims will have their own items out after uh this podcast comes out uh I wear in the winter I'll wear what I call rain shorts, where I take a pair of rain pants and you know not ones with zippers down the side, but just cheap cheap rain pants and cut them off um at the knees. And so if it's raining, you know, if it's 40 degrees and raining, you're waiting wet. Uh, if you pull those on, it makes all the difference in the world. That's a
1: really um, good idea. I've ne- I'd never thought of that before, but yeah, your feet in the water will be basically protected from getting cold once they get used to it. Right. And then that just keeps your upper legs dry. Is that the
2: goal? Yeah. keeps It keeps your, you know, everything from the, the waist down dry. I mean, you've got a raincoat on and the raincoat I wear is a little bit oversized so it fits over the chest pack so that's protected and then the backpack I and mean, given how much it rains, you know, the hundred inches last year, I've got a waterproof backpack, uh so everything can be sealed up there. So with a raincoat and that and then by pulling the rain pants on keeps your shorts dry. And and everything I mean it's so again, it's so dense and sort of loamy and you know, it's just if if you're up there in the uh in when it's raining it's it's filthy dirty too. It's you know, you're everything's wet and dirty and you're slipping and sliding down this like loamy soil and um <laughs> you know, it's I mean I have the the clothes I wear when I fish are you know, they're permanently stained, you know, dirt colored. They're never it's never coming out.
1: Well, I'm not jealous of your, I've been jealous of most of what you've been talking about today, but I'm not jealous of the amount of rain you get there, it sounds like.
2: I know, it's, uh, and you know, if you were to ask me my ideal fishing day, it'd be out west without a rhododendron <laughs> or a tree in
1: sight. The grass is always greener. Um,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: Well, Palmer, we've we've been going for over an hour now, so I can uh, I can let you get going, but I'm excited to hear how the rest of this brook trout project goes. You say you're around 70 streams right now?
2: Yeah, 74 and uh, you know there's no Yeah, there's no right now I believe I'll end up over 90 and you know I don't know if there's any chance I'll get to 100. I mean, I've got I've got a lot on my list that are pretty pretty high likelihood targets, so I'm pretty confident I'll get over 90. Um and honestly when I hit that it then it gets super interesting because then it's you know really even ex- you're getting further off off the grid and really exploring and finding streams that are even more remote and things like that. So I got I have a long way ahead of yeah, me. Yeah,
1: I think it, it sounds like it'll just get I mean more and more challenging, but probably more and more fun too as you start to find more of your own streams that haven't been documented yet or um, you know don't have names or just take tributaries up and things like that.
2: And there are a lot like that too. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of streams on my list that, yeah, you know, they do have names, uh, but they were I never found yeah you know, I've never found a single mention of brook trout in all my searches, and I've never found anyone who thought there were brook trout on them. So there's there's some and those are obviously the coolest ones. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, the self discovery.
1: Do you know how many streams you get on average each year?
2: Uh, so last year I fished more than I would have only because it rained so much. So a lot of the other fishing I would have done was blown out. So I hit the mountains more, you know, which you can fish in higher water a little better. And I think I got 30 or so last year and I'll, I'm probably ahead of that pace this year right now. Um, Well, maybe
1: we can check back in in like a year and see how that how this year and the beginning of next year like stacks up to previous years if you'd be open to that
2: yeah oh absolutely yeah i'll I'll definitely keep you informed and uh you know meeting uh spending time with this department of resource uh natural resource biologists will add a whole nother element too so that's just beginning. very cool
1: all right well i will let you get going but uh look forward to keeping in touch and hopefully checking back into I, I we could talk about this stuff all night so i think we'll tune back in another time and hear hear what's new then
2: perfect and uh thanks for thanks for having me on
1: yeah thanks for coming on this has been great and that's a wrap on episode number three as always if you liked what you heard go ahead and go over to the wild initiative podcast you can subscribe there you'll get my show every thursday as well as all of sam's other shows throughout the week uh you can also follow me on instagram at fish untamed or on go wild at my name katie bergert and until next time take care